All right. Uh, okay. It sounds like we have good volume. Carrie, thank you for praying. And, you know, sometimes we just hear things. Carrie just mentioned it, that we have a woman who has been in hospice, dying of cancer, withering away, and her primary concern is for her husband and that we look after him after she's gone. It's stuff like that just blows your mind about the body of Christ. So, and uh, good to see Rich and Debbie here today as well. So, um, let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, we're going to pick up where Arnold left off last week. And um, hopefully everyone's got their handouts. And the sermon title for today is Five Additional Events, or God's Further Preparation to Deliver His People from Egypt. I did uh, Exodus 2 and I called it uh, God's Patient Preparations, and this is God's Further Preparations to Deliver His People from Egypt. And the subtitle will be Five Additional Events Orchestrated by God to Ready Moses and the Sons of Israel for Freedom from Egyptian Bondage. So the year is 1535, and a young John Calvin had just published his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He is passing through Geneva, Switzerland, on his way to Strasbourg, France, where he wanted to settle down and just study scripture and write in a quiet place, kind of an academic like he was. Well, at the same time, in God's providence, the Reformation was really taking hold in Geneva, thanks in part to a Protestant missionary named William Farrell. Not Will Farrell, the actor, but William Farrell. When Farrell found out that the author of the Institutes, Calvin, was in town, he went to Calvin and pled with Calvin to stay in Geneva and lead this new burgeoning Protestant group of believers uh, in Geneva. Well, Calvin refused, and he said, you know, I just want to have a quiet life of studying scripture and writing theological treatises, and I'm not sure in the religious upheaval, you know, the Reformation in Geneva is real. it's too chaotic. It's not really the place where I'd be able to do that. Well, Farrell then invokes Jesus and says to Calvin in their conversation, quote, may God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your help. Translation, Farrell's basically praying, I hope you have no peace or calm for your study until you help us and serve us here. Calvin later reported that these words shocked and broke him and that he desisted from the journey to France that he had begun. And we know that Calvin became one of the great leaders of the Reformation there in Geneva. Similarly, God, as we have studied, appeared to Moses and said, I want you to be the person who leads the nation of Israel, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt, out of Egyptian bondage. And like Calvin, Moses objected. He was hesitant. He was wishy-washy. He was fearful. He had all kinds of questions. But also, like Calvin, 
Like Pharaoh persisted with Calvin, God overcame Moses' reluctance to lead by basically defeating all of these objections and all of these hesitations, all, answering all of these questions. So Moses had no arguments left. He was going to do it. And as we come to Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31, it's really time for Moses to get to work and be the deliverer and the mediator that God chose to use to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And the question is, is Moses ready? Are there any additional steps or events that are needed to further prepare Moses to lead the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and to the promised land? Our theme today for the sermon really gets at this. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31, God sovereignly orchestrates additional events to further prepare Moses to lead the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and to the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. More specifically, in this section of Exodus, Moses, who wrote Exodus, gives us five additional events orchestrated by God to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage. And those five events are, and we'll go through these obviously, number one, Moses' amicable departure from Midian. Moses' amicable departure from Midian. Number two, Yahweh's additional disclosures to Moses. Yahweh's additional disclosures to Moses. Third, Yahweh's abrupt detention to mortify. I realize that's a little cryptic. You'll understand what it means when we get there. Four, brothers, brother Aaron's deployment to mediate. And five, we saw a little bit of that last week, and uh, Arnold taught in the first part of Exodus 4. And number five, Aaron's, uh, Abraham's descendants believe and worship. So just to catch us up real quick in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, God begins to prepare Moses for leadership. Moses was impulsive. He did things his own way. His sense of timing wasn't great. And he needed to learn patience. He needed to learn humility. He needed to learn wisdom. And God ultimately exiled Moses to the land of Midian for 40 years to start developing in Moses these key characteristics needed for leadership. In Exodus chapter 3, we know that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush let Moses know that he was God's chosen instrument to lead the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And we saw all the questions and the hesitations and the objections from Moses in chapter 3. And last week in uh, Exodus 4 verses 1 to 17, Arnold continued. That's all one conversation between God and Moses, by the way, Exodus 3, 1 until 4, 17. It's the burning bush scene. And Arnold taught us that God further revealed himself to Moses and his plans, and he defeated more of Moses' objections about leading the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And in Exodus 4, 17, still at Horeb or Mount Sinai, uh, whichever you choose, the mountain of God, they're all the same. God reminds Moses to take that staff with him, the staff that he turned into a serpent. So that's the situation as we arrive in Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Let's jump in. Five additional events orchestrated by God to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage. 
five additional events. Event number one, Moses' amicable departure from Midian. Now remember, since the beginning of Exodus 3, Moses is out there, the burning bush scene. He's not in Midian. In fact, I have a little map here. Midian is that sort of vertical circle in the lower right corner on the other side of the Red Sea. Uh, on the other side, that's a gulf. I don't remember the name offhand, actually. Mount Sinai is adjacent to it near the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula circled. Egypt is way up in the left, and the Promised Land is up in the right, just to orient you a little bit. So Moses was down at Mount Sinai, the burning bush. Midian is not very close, but Moses was out there. And as we arrive in Exodus 4.18, Moses' amicable departure from, for, from Midian, and the first sub-point there is... Moses returns to Midian from the burning bush. This is verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. The burning bush scene ends and Moses returns to his father-in-law and his family. He was in Midian for 40 years. And I will say, by the way, that this chapter has about seven or eight scene changes. So it's very rapid-fire narrative. So if I start doing rapid-fire teaching, it's in a sense to mimic the narrative style of Moses here. It's like scene, move, scene, move, scene, move. So second sub-point under Moses' amicable departure from Midian is Moses' request to depart from Midian to Egypt, second half of verse 18. So Moses gets back to Midian and he goes to his father-in-law Jethro and says, please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. So in response to the whole narrative and the events at the burning bush and God's commands there, Moses realizes I need to go back to Egypt. He hadn't been there in 40 years. He probably didn't know much of what was going on there. All we are told is that he asks his father-in-law Jethro for his blessing to go back to Egypt to see his Israelite brethren and see if they're still alive. And one thing I would note here, a little bit of progression in Moses' character. He, as I said, he was very impulsive. The younger Moses may have just dropped everything at the burning bush scene, left, you know, the question is, what did all, were all the sheep doing when that bush was burning? But may have left all the sheep there and just taken off and gone back to Egypt very impulsively. But no, Moses goes back to the family and he actually asks for his father-in-law's blessing to leave. So we, maybe we see a little bit more patience and um, wisdom in Moses here after 40 years in Midian. And Jethro, his father-in-law, very kindly responds. It's, it, it's a little bit of a command. He says, go in peace. He uses the phrase, lek le shalom. Shalom, I think we're all familiar with that phrase. It's go in peace. So Moses has his father-in-law's permission, and he prepares to go. Verse 19, third subpoint under our first event, Yahweh's comforting statement to Moses. Verse 19 now Yahweh said to Moses, in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses is in Midian. Yahweh appears to him again and commands him, go back to Egypt. Maybe Yahweh reiterated this command just in the event Moses may have gotten a little bit of cold feet by the time he was back in Midian. He's all, no, go back to Egypt. And Yahweh also graciously adds a key detail. 
all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So remember, Moses, when he fled Egypt, Pharaoh was looking to kill him. I would imagine the Egyptian he killed, maybe his family or his children were looking to kill Moses as well. So Yahweh, again, to cut off any opportunity for Moses to express, ex, uh, express fear or hesitation, he says, everyone who's seeking to kill you back then, they're all dead. Don't worry. So Yahweh graciously gives Moses some comfort with that additional fact. Our God is a God of comfort who works with us in our weaknesses, is he not? He is so gracious. Anyway, Yahweh recommands Moses to return to Egypt and gives him that comfort that all those who are seeking his life were dead. Next sub-point under our first event, Moses' amicable departure from Midian. Moses prepares the family to depart Midian. This is verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. So look at Moses' obedience here. He's actually following God's command to go back to Egypt. He actually has that staff in his hand, which God reminded him to do in verse 17. And Moses packs up the family in that ancient Middle Eastern station wagon called a donkey and leaves Midian and heads back to Egypt after 40 years of exile. And that staff that, remember, he showed up in Exodus 3.1 at the burning bush scene. He had the staff with him. That was a common thing that shepherds carried around. However, this is now not just a staff, according to verse 20. It is the staff of God because God imbued that staff with power and the, uh, the ability to do signs through that staff. So it was no longer just a staff. It was the staff of God. And that staff, as we'll see going forward in Exodus, would be a strength of Moses, but it's also going to be a little bit of a stumbling block for Moses, as we will see in later chapters of Exodus. So don't forget that staff. Nevertheless, this is Moses' amicable departure from Midian. He goes to his father-in-law. He gets his blessing. They pack up. They get ready to go. And by the way, he left well. He didn't burn any bridges. He did it the right way. So the next event that God orchestrates to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage, event number two, Yahweh's additional disclosure to Moses. He's already appeared to him again in 419, but there's still more. So shortly after Moses leaves Midian on the way to Egypt, Yahweh makes some additional disclosures to Moses. He's not just repeating what happened at the burning bush. There's more. If you're following in the handout, our first subpoint, Yahweh's command to perform wonders before Pharaoh. Yahweh's command to perform wonders before Pharaoh. So verse 21, beginning of the verse, Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all of the wonders which I have put in your power. Now remember at the burning bush, there were three wonders that were done. There was the staff turning into the serpent. There was the leprous hand. And there was also the turning the uh, water of the Nile into blood. 
But those wonders were specifically to be done for the sons of Israel to make sure they believed the words that the Lord was sending with Moses to them. Here, Moses tells Yahweh to perform wonders before Pharaoh. This is different. This is additional. And the command here in verse, the beginning of verse 21 is basically, Moses, see to it that you completely perform before Pharaoh's, before Pharaoh, all of the wonders that I have put within your power. So as we know, likely from reading Exodus in the past, and as we will see going forward, there are a lot more wonders that Moses was able to do beyond the staff turning into the serpent, the leprous hand, and the water turning to blood. So this is additional. This is Yahweh's additional disclosure to Moses. Now again, second subpoint: Yahweh's advance warning that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. So verse 21, Yahweh says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So this, this is Yahweh still disclosing information to Moses to guide him, to help him. He says, Moses, even if you do those wonders before Pharaoh, it's not going to work initially. He's not going to let the people go. I will harden his heart. So there's a lot here. I mean, we could spend a whole message just on this verse. First of all, again, Yahweh is gracious to Moses. Moses' faith at this point in time is still fairly weak. And Yahweh lets Moses know that even though you're going to perform these wonders before Pharaoh, he's not going to let the people go. And Yahweh, by telling Moses that, in a sense says, you know what? I'm still sovereign. I'm still in control. I'm still in charge of the outcome. I've got this. Yahweh is showing Moses he's still sovereign because if Moses went and performed those signs before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, you know what? No. I'm not letting anyone go. Moses may have just walked away to heck with this. But no, Yahweh again is cutting off the ability of Moses to object or hesitate or waver in the mission. So Yahweh is gracious to Moses by giving them this additional disclosure that initially Pharaoh will not let the people go even though you perform those wonders. And Yahweh, and Yahweh says to Moses in verse 21, the reason for that, I will harden his heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Hardening is, the best illustration I could think of is people, if you work with clay, clay is really malleable. You can mold it and move it and shape it. And to harden it, you put it in a kiln and then that gets hardened or firmed up. That's really what it means to harden. In human terms, it's an unwillingness. It's a resistance. It's an extreme stubbornness. It's an obstinance to changing someone's mind or position on something. So that person would be hardened in that position. They're not going to change. And Yahweh here talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart. And he says, note, very important here. He doesn't say, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is forward-looking. He will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, I want to stop here because the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is something that is going to recur in the next weeks and months that we go through Exodus. 
Yahweh's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, or really anyone's heart, is essentially where God will abandon someone to their stubborn, hardened, disobedient, sinful disposition. God doesn't have to put us into that state of being stubborn and hardened and sinful and disobedient. We're there because of the fall. We are there because of the fall. Psalm 51.5, in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born in sin. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're already in that state. We, God doesn't need to put us into a state where we cling to our sin and we are hardened in our sin. He does not need to put us there. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, is talking about the doctrine of election. And he uses the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to illustrate the doctrine of election, the difference between the elect and the non-elect. And this will help us to understand a little bit of what we mean by hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You know, in Romans 9.18, you don't need to turn there, Paul says, he, Yahweh, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. If you have the book Biblical Doctrine, which I imagine many of us do, around pages 503 to 505, there's a discussion of a doctrine called the doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation. And I just want to read a little snippet to help us understand about hardening in the context. Here it's talking about election, but it really applies to what Yahweh is going to do with Pharaoh's heart. Biblical Doctrine, page 505, quote, Paul uses the active voice to speak of God's involvement in election and the passive voice to speak of his involvement in reprobation. In the case of the elect, he actively intervenes, setting love on them, determining to appoint Christ as their savior, and to send the spirit to sovereignly quicken them from spiritual death unto new life in Christ. In the case of the non-elect, however, he does not intervene, but simply passes them by, choosing to leave them in their state of sinfulness and then to punish them for their sin, close quote. Pastor Tom preached on Romans 9, the part that discusses the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in this section of Romans on October 28th, 2018, if anyone wants to go back and listen. Pastor Tom, among many things he said in that message, said, quote, God hardens those already in rebellion against him. God doesn't cause anyone spiritual insensitivity. Rather, he withholds his grace and allows them to continue in the state of sin that they have already freely chosen. So in verse 21 of Exodus chapter 4 here, all Yahweh has said is, I will sovereignly harden Pharaoh's heart. It has not happened yet. And as we continue in Exodus, this is I wanted to lay this foundation because we're going to see this interplay between Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening his heart. So I wanted to point that out. But back to the text. So after Moses does these wonders before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's not going to let the sons of Israel go because Yahweh will abandon Pharaoh to the hardness of heart that he already had. And in light of this, Yahweh continues to give disclosures to Moses. He commands, subpoint C under event two, Yahweh's command to admonish Pharaoh. 
So Moses does these wonders. Pharaoh says, I'm not letting anyone go. And Yahweh tells Moses, well, there's more you need to say. Yahweh says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, that's the command. So Yahweh tells Moses, this is what you need to say to Pharaoh after he refuses to let people go that first time. Continuing reading on Exodus 4.22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you, Pharaoh, have refused to let him go. Behold, I, Yahweh, will kill your son, your firstborn, Pharaoh. So from Yahweh, Moses, Moses is the conduit. He's speaking Yahweh's words here to Pharaoh, and he says, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Man, that's another comment that's completely pregnant with meaning here. So Yahweh says that Israel collectively is his son, and not just his son, his firstborn son. And we know that comes with all kinds of privileges and responsibilities from our studies in Genesis. Remember, Jacob and Esau, they fought about that. They wanted that designation of firstborn to get those benefits, to get those blessings, to be first in rank, to have that preeminence as the firstborn son. I have a question, though. When we think of Yahweh's firstborn son, who do we think of? I heard a couple people said, Jesus, yes. We think of Jesus, the only begotten son. He's called the firstborn in Romans 8.29. He's called the firstborn in Colossians 1.15. At his baptism in Mark chapter 1, Yahweh from heaven says, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. In Mark chapter 9, Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses was, by the way, Yahweh says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In Exodus, he says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That's more than just saying that Israel is the nation with special status or privilege like a firstborn. Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son who will be redeemed from bondage in Egypt to preserve the line of the Genesis 3.15 seed. And it is this redemption and preservation of that nation that is really going to point to the redemption of a people from slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness through God's true one-of-a-kind firstborn Genesis 3.15 seed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot here. We could say a lot more about this. But unfortunately, we have to move on. So after Moses tells Pharaoh that, or after Yahweh, uh, Moses tells Pharaoh that Yahweh, Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son, he then tells Pharaoh for Yahweh, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So Pharaoh, in his stubbornness, in his hardness, in his sinfulness, is going to utterly refuse for a while to let the sons of Israel go. And in response, Yahweh, through Moses, says, okay then, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. This looks forward to some future chapters in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, coming to the Passover, which we will get to. 
So that is Yahweh's additional disclosure to Moses. Yahweh, Moses is on the way to Egypt. He's barely left Midian and Yahweh is still feeding him information, graciously encouraging him. And the next event God orchestrates to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage, event number three, Yahweh's abrupt detention to mortify. This is verses 24 to 26. You'll get the meaning of this heading once we go through it. This is a new scene. So Moses and his family, they're on the way to Egypt. They're probably somewhere between, I think I have my, do I have my map? Where's my map here? Let me shoot back to the map. He's probably somewhere between Midian and the lower right. Maybe he went around the sea there and he's headed toward Mount Sinai because ultimately he's going to meet his brother there, although he, that's where he's headed. So the bottom line is somewhere between Midian and Mount Sinai, Yahweh's abrupt detention to mortify. Verse 24, this is pretty shocking. This is a little out there and, and, and shocking. Yahweh meets Moses and seeks to kill him. It says, verse 24, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. Him there is Moses. It's the last logical antecedent for an individual. It's not Pharaoh. It doesn't work for Yahweh. It's Moses. So Yahweh meets Moses and sought to put him to death? What? I mean, isn't this the Moses that God preserved from Pharaoh's second kill order in Exodus chapter 2? Isn't this the same Moses that God appeared to in the burning bush and spoke to him for a chapter and a half and had Moses doing miracles? I mean, what's going on here? Yahweh doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Moses to directly say what the story is, except that the circumstances that follow help explain the situation. Second heading here, Zipporah circumcises one of their sons. So Yahweh meets Moses and seeks to kill him. Zipporah circumcises one of their sons. Without any further background, no other explanation, Moses simply tells the reader, verse 25, then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. So Moses' wife takes what is essentially an ancient knife and circumcises one of their two sons. And then, heading C, Zipporah's outburst toward Moses. Second half of verse 25, after circumcising one of their sons, Zipporah threw the foreskin at Moses' feet and said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Zipporah does not appear to be particularly happy here. Some commentators say that Midians did not like circumcision. It wasn't something they practiced. Or perhaps one of their sons was circumcised early on and she was so disgusted by it, she's like, we're not doing this again. The bottom line is, Zephora was not happy. Seems that she found circumcision to be repugnant. She may have also been disgusted with Moses because it appears that when Yahweh shows up and seeks to kill Moses, she seems to have known enough about what was going on to circumcise one of their sons. So she then refers to Moses twice as a bridegroom of blood, the second time in verse 26. And in verse 26, she adds, because of the circumcision... 
So certainly this appears to be some level of anger or frustration because perhaps Zipporah was just repulsed by circumcision. She had an aversion to it. She found it repugnant. Perhaps she was really disappointed in Moses. She kind of knew that there was a requirement for young Hebrew males to be circumcised. Whatever the case is, she is not happy, and that's her outburst toward Moses. Fourth heading, Yahweh relents from seeking to kill Moses. Once the poor, the text, again, very rapid fire. Once the poor circumcised their son, beginning of verse 26, so he, Yahweh, let him, Moses, alone. Yahweh relented. He no longer sought to kill Moses. Commentators Kyle and Dalich say, quote, this hostile attitude on the part of God was occasioned by Moses' neglect to circumcise his son. For as soon as Zipporah cut off, circumcised the foreskin of her son with a stone, Jehovah let Moses go, close quote. I want to dig into this a little deeper. What is this all about? Why was Yahweh so angry with Moses to the point of seeking to kill him? Well, Clearly, Moses not circumcising one of his sons was a big deal. It was a major issue. You know, Yahweh had chosen Moses to be the man to lead the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And God's leaders need to be above reproach. And here there is some significant sin. There was some significant sin in Moses that needed to be mortified. And God detained Moses on the way to Egypt to get this done. And what sin was it? Well, back in Genesis 17, which we covered a year ago or so, Yahweh was talking to Abraham and he's talking about being blameless. And then he goes into the ordinance of circumcision and basically issues the command that all Hebrew males are to be circumcised on the eighth day. And in Genesis 17, 14, Yahweh says an uncircumcised male would be in covenant violation and would be cut off from his people. And cut off can mean to be removed from or it can even mean to be killed. One of Moses' sons being uncircumcised was Moses' fault as the head of the household. He didn't do it on the eighth day as he was required to do. And think about this, though. Moses is being chosen by God to lead Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. And he needed to be obedient to the covenant that marked the sign of Abraham's descendants, of those people. He needed to be above reproach, especially on something so obvious like that. He wasn't above reproach because he didn't circumcise his son. Think about it like this. Imagine someone's being vetted to be an elder in a church, and he's deep into the process, and they find out that that person's never been baptized. Or maybe even more accurately, maybe that elder has some, you know, teenage, high school-age kids in the house, and they're both truly believers, and everybody knows it, but those kids haven't been baptized. You know, that's kind of an obvious thing that needs to be done. It's an ordinance. It's a sign, if you will. So Yahweh was so angry with Moses because Moses was not above reproach in one of the most fundamental requirements for Hebrew fathers. So at that point in time, Moses was truly not qualified to lead. So that sin had to be mortified. Yahweh cut off, he removed, he mortified that impediment 
to Moses' leadership. And now that Zipporah circumcised their son, that issue was removed. That is the abrupt detention to mortify. Well, the next event God orchestrates to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage, event number four, brother Aaron's deployment to mediate. Brother Aaron's deployment to mediate. So after that abrupt detention to mortify Moses' sin, we have another scene change and we meet Moses' older brother Aaron. Yahweh commands Aaron, first subpoint. Yahweh commands Aaron to meet Moses at Sinai, beginning of verse 27. Now Yahweh said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. You know, Yahweh commands him to go. This was foreshadowed actually in chapter 4, verse 14, last week when Arnold taught. And one thing to notice here, no resistance from Aaron. No hesitation, no objections. He just goes. So Yahweh commands Aaron to meet Moses at Sinai. Second subheading, the brothers' joyful reunion. Second half of verse 27. So he, Aaron, went and met him, Moses, at the mountain of God and kissed him. So Aaron goes to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. He meets Moses and he kisses him. It's a joyful reunion. They likely had not seen each other for at least 40 years, perhaps even 70 or 75 years from the time that Moses was given to Pharaoh's daughter. It doesn't say. We're not really given any further details. At this point in time, Moses is 80 years old and Aaron's 83, according to Exodus 7, 7. He's three years older than Moses. Just pretty rapid fire narrative at this point. Yahweh commands Aaron to go to Mount Sinai to meet Moses. They reunite, it's joyful, and they get on to business. Subpoint C, Moses shares Yahweh's commands and disclosures with Aaron. After their quick reunion, Moses' job now is to get Aaron up to speed about what Yahweh had revealed to him. So look back at Exodus chapter 4, verse 16 real quick. This is still at the burning bush. This is Yahweh talking to Moses about Aaron. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. And now verse 28 of Exodus chapter 4, Moses told Aaron all the words of Yahweh with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. So whatever Yahweh had revealed to Moses at the burning bush about their mission to go and and free the Israelites and deal with Pharaoh. Moses shares all of that. Whatever the whole counsel of God was in that situation, Moses shared it. And he is acting as God in a sense. He's the one disclosing to Aaron, and then Aaron is the one who's going to repeat as the mediator, in a sense, for Moses. So Moses shares Yahweh's and command, uh, commands and disclosures with Aaron. Next heading, the brothers assemble 
and share Yahweh's word with the elders of Israel. This is verses 29 to 30, another scene change. So they get together at Mount Sinai. At some point in there, they have this Moses sharing of the information with Aaron, and now they're going to assemble the elders of Israel back in Egypt. So another scene change, verse 29, then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of Israel. The elders of Israel would be the older, wiser men in the population. Aaron may have been one of them, in fact. And verse 30, and Aaron spoke all the words which Yahweh had revealed, which Yahweh had spoken to Moses. He, most likely Moses, then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So Aaron faithfully proclaims what Yahweh had disclosed to Moses to the elders of the sons of Israel, and then Moses performs the signs to authenticate them as truly speaking for Yahweh, for the God of the universe. That authentication is important. Now, does God's word give us any more detail than about what Aaron said other than saying all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses? Turn back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. Exodus 3, 16. This is, again, Yahweh speaking to Moses at the burning bush. He says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up from out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, note that in verse 16, he says, I am concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. That reminds us of the prayer and God's response to it at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus. So turn back there, uh, if you would, Exodus 2.23 Exodus 2.23, this is after Moses has been exiled to Midian, and it says, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. But as we're sitting here in Exodus chapter 4, the sons of Israel didn't know about that response yet. They didn't know what came of that prayer in Exodus 2. They didn't know about the burning bush. They didn't know about Yahweh's self-disclosure to Moses. They didn't know that Moses was even alive. So now, to have Moses and Aaron show up, and they may have known Aaron because he may have been an elder, but to have Aaron tell them all that Yahweh had conveyed to them and to see Moses perform these signs must have just been amazing. More on that in a minute. But that is Brother Aaron's deployment to mediate. That is Brother Aaron's deployment to mediate. He comes with Moses. They go to the elders of the sons of Israel and share all that Yahweh had spoken with them, including this bit about their prayer and how Yahweh had heard it. 
The final event God orchestrates to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage, Abraham's descendants believe and worship. This is verse 31. So after hearing Aaron speak God's word and seeing Moses perform those signs to authenticate those words as the word of God, first heading, the sons of Israel believe Aaron's words. Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, very simple. So the people believed. Moses does not embellish. He just tells us that the people, or perhaps the elders as representatives of the people, believe the words that God, through Moses, through Aaron, had for them. And that belief, that word is a firm, a sure trust. They believed it. But there's more. They finally heard that Yahweh knew and was concerned about their affliction. Second heading, the sons of Israel heard and heard that Yahweh knew and was concerned about their affliction. Exodus 4.31, middle of the verse. And when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, Aaron didn't just talk about what Moses and he were going to do with Pharaoh. He let the sons of Israel know that Yahweh has been concerned about them, is concerned about them, knows what's going on with them. Before this, they didn't know. They just uttered that prayer. They sighed, they groaned, they cried out. Now they're finding out that their prayer has been answered. And what is their response to learning that God was concerned for them and had an intimate awareness of their affliction? Subpoint C. The sons of Israel bow low and worship. End of verse 31. They bowed low and worshiped. They assumed a reverential posture and worshiped. In biblical doctrine, page 790 to 791, it says, quote, To worship the Lord is to ascribe to him the honor, glory, adoration, praise, reverence, and devotion that is due him both for his greatness and for his goodness. The sons of Israel worshiped Yahweh. They worshiped the one who intimately knew what was going on with them, who was concerned about them, and who now through Aaron and Moses was speaking to them. They bowed low and worshiped. I mean, that is a great response to what they had seen and heard. That is a great response to answered prayer. When God answers your prayers, do you thank him? Do you praise him? Do you fellowship with him? in thanksgiving and praise? Or do you just give a quick praise the Lord, thanks, when he answers your prayers and not much more? I will tell you that when I was working on studying here and meditating on this verse, it caused me to think about taking time to stop and literally fellowship with the Lord in thanks and adoration and praise, and gratitude when he answers our prayers. 
And that's how chapter 4 ends, with the sons of Israel bowed low and worshiping. It's like the 24 elders and the four living creatures that we heard about in the service just now. They bowed low and worshiped. In Revelation 19. So that's Abraham's descendants believing and worshiping. So like John Calvin, who was this very reluctant person to have a public-facing ministry during the Reformation, Moses was also reluctant and resistant to being used by God to go to Pharaoh and lead the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But in a series of events orchestrated by God, Calvin ultimately relented and was used by God to become the giant of Reformed theology that we know him to be. And likewise, Moses, with his brother Aaron by his side, moved forward to start the mission of leading the sons of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And we will see that more in the coming weeks and months. So today, we saw five additional events orchestrated by God to ready Moses and the sons of Israel for freedom from Egyptian bondage. One, Moses' amicable departure from Midian. Two, Yahweh's additional disclosures to Moses. Third, Yahweh's abrupt detention to mortify. Four, brother Aaron's deployment to mediate. And five, Abraham's descendants believe and worship. There's some application material on the handout, but I'll just say this. Like Moses leaving Midian, leave well. If you leave a job or you leave, you know, a church, leave well. Don't burn any bridges. Like Moses when he left Midian, he left well. Also, if any of us aspire to any type of leadership in the church, wherever it might be, let's make sure we're above reproach and there are no obvious deficiencies in our walk with the Lord, like Moses failing to circumcise his son. And third, again, when the Lord answers our prayers or the prayers of those close to us, don't just say, praise the Lord in passing. I mean, that's okay, but we can do better than that. Bow low and worship the Lord, whether you really want to bow low or not. Fellowship with the Lord. Stop and spend time with him in worship and praise and thanksgiving for who he is and for the fact that he has answered our prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, this chapter, this half of a chapter in Exodus is so typical of your word, loaded with meaning and significance. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for revealing who you are to us through your word. Thank you so much for showing us that we need to leave well when we part ways with people for whatever reason, that we need to be careful about our walk with the Lord at all times. And also, Lord, please forgive us for not thanking you and praising you and worshiping you as we should when you answer our prayers. Even as Pastor Tom said this morning, what we pray for is too feeble and weak. We don't pray for enough. You can do exceeding abundant above all we can ask or think, Lord, and you will answer those prayers when they're in accordance with your will. 
And when you do answer those prayers, Lord, help us to really shine and thank you and praise you and fellowship with you and really be a testimony to those watching around us of the joy that we have in you because you are a great God and a good God. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.